I'll stall as long as I can by telling you my testimony. And, and how long do we have, by the way? When, when does this end typically? Forty-five minutes. Okay, I'll definitely be able to leave then uh, five minutes for questions. <laughs> well, my, my uh, parents, my dad was born on a farm in Minnesota. Anybody here born in Minnesota? Really? What, what town? Um, Twin, cities. Twin Cities, yeah. My family's all Minneapolis. I was born in a little town called Worthington, right next to Butterfield, big metropolis. Um, we used to go there every summer for the, the Butterfield Threshing Bee. That's exciting, isn't it? Uh, they, they'd bring all the equipment out that they'd kept for centuries, and we kids hated it. But uh, at any rate, uh, he was saved. My dad was saved when he was in the military and uh, never went back to the farm. In fact, he sold his portion of the farm and uh, went off to uh, Bible college and then ended up serving uh, kind of as a chaplain to the military for the next 65 years. He's still alive. My mother died last year. He's, in, uh, he's 92, and uh, he still calls me every Sunday morning to see if I'm out of bed. I mean, to pray with me and uh, ask me when I'm going to preach. And I tell him, like I talked to him this morning, and it's just such a, a sweet uh, relationship. I'm very grateful uh, for that. Um, even though my parents were committed to the ministry, I think because I, I knew the stakes were high. I, I, I knew there was no such thing as a, you know, a 70-30 relationship with God. It was everything or nothing. And I was raised around that. Uh, because of that, I really, I, I was angry, I think, at God. I, I didn't want him to have my life. Um, there had to be something more fun to do than this. And so I resisted the gospel. And, uh, but growing up in that kind of home, hearing my dad teach the sailors in Norfolk, Virginia, which is where the center was, every Friday night, verse by verse, um, you know, God was certainly at work in my heart. I remember uh, at about 16 coming under a lot of conviction and becoming very afraid of the rapture because I knew if that took place, I wouldn't go in anywhere. I was going to be right here in an empty house. And that really plagued me. In fact, um, it bothered me to the point that, that I would uh, think about it often. What if, what if Jesus came back and called the church, the, this, this dispensation's over, and the next thing is the tribulation and the Antichrist, and what if he, what if he came now? And I think about that. I remember being on a... Uh, date. Um, and it was, it was uh, midnight. I was 17, almost 17. And we were at a stoplight on the way to a party at the beach. This is real close. Norfolk's very close to Virginia Beach. So we were on our way. And the light, this will tell you how paranoid I was, the light, the stoplight flickered. And I sit there and begin to have this conversation. I wonder if Jesus came, caused a cosmic disturbance, made that electricity flicker, and I'm done. And I didn't say a thing to her. Um, but I pulled into a, a telephone booth. These are these real tall square things. You used to be in gas stations and you put a quarter in. I pulled in, got a telephone book out, found my uncle's phone number, and dialed his house. It's midnight. And my heart is pounding. It rings, and it rings, and it rings. And finally, my very sleepy uncle answers it, hello, and I hang up. <laughs> I know he's here, we're good. The rapture hasn't occurred. I'm good for another day. That's how I was under such deep conviction. And of course, part of it wasn't just you know being left, it was... Christ's claim and the gospel's claim on my life. Uh, when I was uh, 17, heading into uh, my senior year, summer before my senior year, I, I actually had a dream that I was in hell. And all of the, all the truth that I knew uh, was playing on my subconscious mind, crafting this very real dream. And I woke up covered in sweat. 
And I remember lying there thinking, you are a fool. You are battling the sovereign God of the universe who has your eternity in his hand. What are you doing? And I came under such the goodness of God in his grace. I slipped out of my bed on my knees and I said, it's over. My life is now yours. 100%. Well, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. In fact, I didn't want to tell my parents. You know, I didn't want to get, you know, um, featured anywhere. I didn't want them to look at me any differently. I decided that I would just live for Christ and see what happened. Uh, within a matter of uh, that, that uh, senior year starting, within a matter of a week, I lost my girlfriend. I lost my best friend because I had no longer any taste or desire. It was like they were another world. And I wasn't in it. Then we had these nominations for class chaplain. Imagine that. I get nominated. I'm probably the only believer in the class, you know, but I get nominated and I get elected as chaplain of my senior class. So now what do I do? Well, I just started telling them about Christ and uh, uh, began to just live for the Lord. I, I wasn't going into the ministry. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I wanted to be a history teacher. So those of you that come on Sunday morning, you know, you endure the pain of me teaching history. I love history. And, and uh, at any rate, this is the greatest history book on the planet, the Bible. But I went up to college. I went to Liberty University back when it was Liberty Baptist College, no campus. I stayed in Ramada Inn with 200 guys. They bussed us in old yellow buses to a public school where we had classes. That was the liberty I knew and loved. No outdoor ski slope, no ice rink, you know, no fun. Uh, it was just a school bus and, and classroom. But at any rate, uh, I made a singing group. I had been a pianist, you know, most of my childhood, trained classically in new music and, and tried out, made a group. And so we were traveling every weekend, uh, singing in churches and giving our testimony. And I'd come back to class. The Ramada Inn had a swimming pool, had color TV, made service, and two meals a day. Now, now that's college, as it should be. And, and I loved it. In the process of that wonderful year, I flunked everything. God somehow hadn't invaded my discipline at study. And uh, so at any rate, my, uh, that, the last semester, I tried out for what they called the corral. This was a traveling group for Falwell. It was tuition-free, and I made it. And um, so I called my dad on the phone, and I said, hey, guys, I'm not coming home this summer. We're going on a private jet with Falwell to Australia, and we're going to do a series of concerts. So, hey, have a nice summer, and I'll you know, see you when, he, when I get back. He had evidently seen my grades. I don't know how that happened. It was a conspiracy, but he saw evidently that I'd flunked everything. And he was real quiet. My dad's very quiet anyway, typical farmer. And he said, well, son, I think you ought to find a school just a little more established. And I said, well, where's that? And uh, he wanted me to go to a Christian school. And he said, well, I've heard about this school called Tennessee Temple in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It had about 5,000 students. Kind of like a Bob Jones, kind of like a Liberty, just a little bigger than Liberty, of course. So I said, okay. And again, part of what God was doing in my life was giving me respect for them and their decisions. So I didn't argue. I said, if that's you know, how you feel, I'll go to Tennessee Temple. So I went to Chattanooga and started college all over again. I had five happy years of, of uh, college. Some of you might know what that's like. Any five years? Any? You don't want to admit it. That's, oh, good. Good for you. Give them, give them cookies. Huh? Doing engineering, okay. I, that sounds like a good excuse. It really does. Uh, most of us would just say, well, I switched majors and had to go a, another year. But at any rate, uh, I went to Tennessee Temple. First year, first semester, um, my life is about to be changed forever because I'm sitting in British literature class, which was required in the back by the door so I could be the first guy out, last guy in. And there's this brunette sitting on the front row in a class of about 30. And I'd seen her get up and make an announcement. She was the class secretary. And I thought, okay, she's pretty. Uh, that was my spiritual, you know, uh, side speaking. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I'd like to, like to meet her. And so 
um, I thought about it for four months. And uh, she sat in the front, took notes, you know, very winsome, wonderful uh, young lady. And finally, I walked over and I asked her if I could uh, uh, take her out. And uh, she said, of course, yes. I mean, what are you looking at me for? I mean, she said, yes. So we had our first date. And uh, we would date for four years. Now, Marsha's here, she would say, off and on because you broke up with me. I know that's true, but she's not here. So I don't need to give you those details. But she broke up with me once. I just want to get that out there in case you see her in the hallway. We dated off and on. Um, we're committed to, to Christ and to whatever he wanted for us. And uh, um, my senior year, I proposed, and we got married after college. Uh, my last year of, of college was, was transformative. I made another singing group that was tuition-free, and we traveled that summer. I was not the designated preacher. I didn't want to be. Uh, I had spoken twice in my life, once to my high school uh, senior um, um, youth group, and um, what wasn't, I, I was, I, it wasn't for me. Um, I wanted to teach history. Well, I made this group, and the designated speaker was uh, the president of the student body, vice president, something like that. And, um, and so there were six of us guys, and we would travel for the summer, we went to California, and we pulled up to the first church and on Saturday night, and the pastor walked out to the van and said, guys, great to see you. Glad you got here. You're staying here. And oh, by the way, uh, one of you is preaching tomorrow morning, right? And he looked at the leader, and the leader kind of turned pale and nodded. And then the pastor left, and this guy proceeded to tell us he never wanted to preach, didn't know why he was given the task of being the designated hitter, and now he's scared to death because he's got to get up the next morning and preach. And we're sitting in the van, and I'm, I'm feeling sorry for him. And, uh, you know, about that much. And uh, one of the guys in the group, David Smith, said, Stephen can do it. And for whatever reason, I said, why not? You know, I'd been in the Word. I figured I could throw something together. Hopefully no one would throw up on Sunday morning. And... Uh, I got up Sunday morning and preached. And that led to me being the designated hitter. So we would go to all these um, churches. They then asked us to travel a semester, and we went to all these Christian school assemblies. And I would get up and speak for about 15 minutes every day, sometimes two and three concerts a day. And God was working in my heart because it, it was like it fell open to be just, as I said, the greatest history book, anywhere. And so uh, after graduating from college, uh, getting married to Marcia, we, a week after our honeymoon, headed for seminary, and uh, I would spend the next five years getting two master's degrees, one from a seminary in Michigan and the last one in Dallas. And uh, I will back up. Uh, I want this to go as long as I possibly can. So let me, let me back up just for a moment and tell you, when I was a student at Liberty, Jerry Falwell, senior, he's now with the Lord, said something I never forgot, and it would come back to me 10 years later. He said, if you guys are thinking about going into the ministry, which I wasn't, but I'm still listening, he said, don't pray that God will give you a pulpit. Pray that God will give you a city. And I remember sitting there thinking, that is, that is a really cool way to think about ministry for those guys that are going to do it. Well, Fast forward the tape now. My last year at Dallas, they require you to send in your, your vitae, your resume, all that stuff, and they put it in a placement file. You have to do that. It's required. And then churches, you know, respond, and they write Dallas like we have churches, you know, uh, basically approaching Shepherd Seminary now. Do you have any graduates? And uh, so they'll pull out their files and see who they got. Well, I didn't want to do that, again, because I'm, we're going to pray for a city, not a pulpit. The problem was nothing was coming to mind. We're in Dallas. My wife's from Atlanta. I'm from Virginia. We went to school in Tennessee. We don't really have a home. So we'll go anywhere. 
But God wasn't making it very clear, nothing in the sky, the clouds. So one night before I, I get a call from the placement office of where's your resume, I said to Marcia, hey, pick a state. Pick a state. Um, anywhere. And I'll start researching it. And she said, hmm, North Carolina. Well, what she had done is she had calculated in her mind the distance between Georgia and my home in Virginia, miscalculated by about two hours. But at any rate, she calculated and she pegged it as North Carolina. So I said, well, I want to start researching cities. So I researched, I'd heard of Durham. The Durham Bulls, of course, were well-renowned. And it wasn't growing at the time. This is 37 years ago. And I said, I don't want to do that. And so uh, then I remembered that, uh, oh, Charlotte. I thought about Charlotte. I thought that's too big. I don't want to go there, uh, which is interesting. My son is now planting a church in Charlotte. He had bigger faith than me. At any rate, I didn't want to go there. And uh, so then I remembered Raleigh is the capital of North Carolina. Ding, ding, ding. If I'd been awake in, you know, whatever that social studies class was, I'd have remembered that first. Well, Raleigh's the capital. Okay, tuck that away. I get a, a call from the placement office. Where's your resume? And I said, I, I don't want to turn one in because I don't want to be in a placement system. We want God to just do something in our hearts, and give us a city. And uh, he said, I like that young man, but you need to come up and talk to me anyway. So I went up and talked to Dr. Salstrom, who's been in heaven now for about 25 years. And he said, look, tell you what, I like, I like what you're saying. I like your heart. Don't worry about it. Um, forget the resume. I said, well, while I'm here, um, I'm interested in Raleigh. Is there any church plant that's looking for a pastor uh, and they're in Raleigh. And he said, hey, you know what? Uh, there is. And he hollered out to his administrative assistant. She came in and gave the name of a church. It doesn't exist, by the way, so you don't need to go find it. But at the time it was. Uh, Raleigh Bible Church was the name of it. And they were looking for a pastor. 50 people meeting in Broughton High School. And uh, within a week, I'm on a plane flying into RDU. Brand new. I preached they interviewed me all Saturday, and I preached on Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. They kind of got on to me a little bit because they didn't preach hour sermons. That's what they wanted. I thought, I don't want an hour sermon. I can't come up with an hour sermon. But at any rate, they, they did ask me to you know, think a little harder. How long do you preach, Paul? On, you know, good, good man. That's good man. No hour. No. Okay. Sometimes? Okay. Sometimes. If you have to. All right. <laughs> At any rate, uh, they, they said, hey, we like you, but we, we want you to come back. So about four weeks later, I'm coming back with them. In the meantime, my wife delivers twins. Uh, we had decided that we would not have children until we graduated from seminary. I'm in my last semester, and God says, nope, you'll have two. It was a great semester. Uh, at any rate, they said, we want your wife to come with you and your twins. So we all pile on the plane and go there for a weekend. I preach again Sunday morning and Sunday night, and they grill me and all day Saturday. And, and then uh, about a month later, they call me and say, you know what? We like you, but we're not sure. So we want you to come back. This is my last semester. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is Raleigh. They can afford to pay me full time. I can feed these boys. And I can be in the ministry. This is going to be great. It's perfect, Lord. But they're not sure, so I'll go back. So I had to go back. I had to preach again. By now, I'm making stuff up. I, I'm out of sermons. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm trying to preach an hour, Paul. And uh, they're grilling me. And, but I'm now having this, mm, these thoughts. I don't know if I like this and this and that. And what about this? And so I was asking them questions. Anyhow, uh, a week after I graduate from Dallas Seminary, the elder calls me, the elder uh, in charge, and says, we like you, but we don't think you're the man. And I thought, wow, Lord, this is strange. This was the area. This was the perfect setup. We're passionate about this. You've given us three free trips out here. We're ready to go, and the answer is no. So we did a tailspin, uh, just thinking, what are we going to do? And um, 30 days after that, my wife comes back. She's been so formative in my life. Um, 
she, she came back from an activity, and, and while she was away, I had called my dad, and I said, we're really struggling. You know, it was so bright, the light was on, Raleigh's it, this is the area, the RTP, Cary, Raleigh, this is it. And now it's dark. And my dad said to me, Stephen, don't, don't, don't let Satan uh, bring you into a darkness that God had given you in the light. In other words, it, it was light. This is the Lord's will, perhaps. Marcia comes back from this activity, walks in and says, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. And she said, I think we just need to go. We can stay in Dallas and go in debt. You don't have a job. You're going to have to get a job. Or we can move to the Raleigh area and start a church. We'll go in debt there, but at least we'll start a church. And I said, well, that's how God's been working in my heart this afternoon as well. And I told her about my conversation with Dad. So I told a businessman who was a friend, and he said, I'm going to write you a check, and it'll pay for you to take a, a rider truck and get to Raleigh. And uh, so we did. That was 36 years ago this past September. Put an ad in the newspaper, prayed that somebody would show up. 28 people did. I think that's about how many people are here. 25, 30 people. This was our first Sunday at East Cary Middle School. I chose that school for one reason, very spiritual reason. It was the only school in Cary that had air conditioning. And we are in North Carolina. So we rented that. We're there six years, built a building down the street on Tryon. We were there for nine years and moved in here 20 years ago. So I can remember, by the way, all that stuff way back then. I can't remember the last 20 years as well. But God has obviously been very, very kind and faithful as uh, we've just kind of gotten in the way. And uh, like Abraham, you know, he being in the way, God led him. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, the Christian life is like from here to that corner. You can never see around a corner. So you just walk in the light God gives you. You get to that corner, and you turn, and it'll give you enough light to see to the next corner. You know when David said, your word is a lamp to my feet? We think of a, a big halogen lamp. It was a handheld lamp made of clay. We have one in my study. You held it in your hand, and it illumined just enough for about two more steps. Then it was pitch dark. But as you stepped, you had enough light for another step or two. That's the word. It gives you just enough for the next step, and not for the rest of your life. So what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know, but I can't wait. We want to do the right thing, follow the Lord, and um, watch and see. And by the way, I'm really excited about what God's doing here. This is really thrilling to see all of you making this kind of sacrifice of time to come and gather on a Sunday evening. I know you're not here because you got spare time and you don't have assignments due, things to do. So I'm just really, really proud of you and glad to be here. Okay, that's it. Now it's time for a question. It can be personal, it can be family, it can be, you know, theological, anything but my weight. Okay, <laughs> that, that should be obvious. All right. Okay, anybody have a question? Yes, sir. My very first Sunday morning, uh, 1986, September 7th, was Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. I don't know what I preached a month ago, but I, I, I know that that one was Nehemiah chapter 1. We started going through the book of Nehemiah. Yeah. And I think I did it in five weeks. I was way too fast. And uh, I've gotten slow in my old age. Yes, sir. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah, the whole issue of head covering, uh, you're talking about that? Should a woman cover her hair when she's in the assembly? Is that what your question is? All right, read it again. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. That doesn't mean he can't wear a baseball cap. Just want to let you off the hook here. Uh, the guy wearing, wearing a hat up front. Uh, it, it, th this is a reference to God's created order. Uh, th this, is, this is one of those verses that hint at headship, one of the most unpopular subjects in America today, which simply means uh, not that he's the one with brains, but that he's the one responsible um, spiritually to shepherd his wife under the leadership of God and the wife glorifies God by her respect of, of him. I thought you were going to take me into the big debate on the head covering, and there's no really good answer on that. There are good men on both sides of that. I think the head covering was a symbol of submission that isn't necessarily uh, equitable to this day of a woman wearing a hat. Good question. Yes, sir. Uh, well, uh, you're, you're probably not going to convince them. Um, you know, I, I think our focus is making disciples, and that's finding a willing learner and coming alongside and uh, teaching them by example, by principle, by Scripture. Uh, to, I, I personally don't feel compelled to correct believers who uh, believe um, errant doctrine in my view. Now, if they ask me, then it's open season. Uh, but there's no, there, there's no calling on my life to go around and correct them all. So I think being gracious, showing them that your testimony in your life is following God regardless of any guarantee. People want guarantees. People want, give me ABC and then I'll reach D. Uh, it, you get married one day, guys, and you have children, you're going to find that parents now want guarantees. Give me the ABC so I can spit out a godly child. Uh, you know, answer all of my questions and button it all down. And I think that's why it's so popular. You, you tell me something to do and I'll get wealthy. Tell me something to do to tap into God's power. And I'll do that. Five ways to increase your finances. Those are sermon series. There are guys out there preaching that. You know, I think it's, you know, I think of that ancient Hebrew word pronounced baloney. That's, it's baloney. <laughs> but it, you know, they sell tapes and CDs. And so my, my mission is not to, to, to challenge them. In fact, I rarely name anyone in the pulpit. There are times when I'm tempted to, because I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of false teachers. Um, I'll, I'll name heretics. Um, but misled individuals, we just we leave them up to the Lord, and if God intersects our path in the in the traffic pattern of our lives, then we'll share from from the Word of God, and God will give you opportunities uh, for that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, pretty much, um, if they're a believer, that's the context. If they're a believer and they have a different view, whether it's prosperity theology, whether it's, um, well, you, you, name, you, you name a hundred views, eternal security, uh, speaking in tongues, election, uh, the role of women in the church. I mean, there, there are so many views. Um, if they come to you and ask you, what do you think the Bible teaches about this? Then you ought to be ready to have an answer. Um, but our, our primary focus is simply testifying of the gospel of Christ to those who do not believe. So much time is spent by Christians warring with Christians over non-essentials. That doesn't mean you don't craft a, a doctrinal statement that's very clear about what you believe, even about non-essentials, which we have. It defines a church. For instance, this idea of a rapture. Are there believers that don't believe in the rapture? Yeah, there's a whole truckload of them. You know, my mission is not to go try to convince them, but as a church, this is what we believe the Bible teaches, and it is um, instructive. What is the church waiting for? Are we waiting for the Antichrist? 
Are we waiting to go through the tribulation? If we are, we really ought to need, we, we really ought to turn this room, Paul, into a granary. We need to start storing food and water because it'll be the greatest evangelistic opportunity the church has ever had because of the famine that's coming to earth. I don't know of any covenantalist who is storing food. I know preppers are, but I don't think they care about the Bible, many of them. But I I I don't I can't find an honest one. But it is, it is. Isn't it important for a church to talk about what's happening next? What do we believe is next? We believe it's the blessed hope. But my goal is not, is not going to go out there to some other church uh, that's a covenantal church and try to convince that pastor. If he asks me, I used to have lunch back in the old days of the high school, middle school, with an assembly of God pastor. And uh, he's a believer, uh, a sweet kind brother. In fact, we helped him get into the school after we moved out. And we'd, we'd kind of talk about issues. And uh, um, that was a forum where we could do that. But if I sense that a believer on a non-essential doctrine who's not part of my responsibility disagrees, I'll go after it if they want to talk about it. If they don't, I'd move on and keep your focus on something more productive. Does that answer your question? What's your favorite book of the Bible? What's my favorite book of the Bible? Should I say Luke? Um, uh, my favorite book of the Bible is probably Ruth. Uh, I've, I've taught through three books in my 36 years twice. One is Nehemiah, because I really needed to figure out how to preach uh, after I did it the first time. And uh, the second book is Esther, which I, that'd be my second favorite. And then Ruth is my first favorite. Um, it is just a phenomenal love story. It's a drama that shows the grace of God and the goodness of God. It's, it's, um, it's, it's loaded with principles of trusting the Lord, uh, um, how to be a godly man, how to be a godly woman. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal book. So I, I preached through that the second time, and I think we took, there's, there's four chapters, I think we did it in, I don't know, 13 sermons, so it was pretty quick. It was, it was quick, compared, compared. But I love that book. I love that book. We wrote the commentary, and I think probably that's one of the most purchased commentaries in our series, the Book of, book of Esther would be second, second favorite. Uh, she's terribly misunderstood. Um, she's pretty wicked and um, is trained for six months to have a one-night stand with a king. And the one that impresses the king the most wins. And we've sort of taken that into this little beauty pageant, you know, and Queen Esther wins the crown. Now, the story is Esther is unfaithful, but God preserves his people in spite of her. So at the end of the story, Mordecai's not the hero. Esther's not the hero. God is. And then God does turn her heart right there at the very end, which is really cool to see. If I die, I die. And so she goes to the king. Those are my two favorites. All right, good. Yes, sir? What are your thoughts on limited atonement? What are my thoughts on limited atonement? <laughs> All right, was this staged, Paul? Huh? <laughs> Let's get into Calvinism, shall we? Uh, are you familiar with the TULIP? How many of you know what the TULIP stands for? All right, you do. The T is total depravity. The U is unconditional election. The L is, ding, 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 limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. And the P is perseverance of the saints. Those are known as the doctrines of grace. Okay? Um, and out of that, of course, comes the wonderful debate about election, which is an unanswerable question. Thank you very, very much for that. However, we'll still try. Okay, um, I, I don't like any of those five statements I gave you uh, for this reason. One, you have a doctrine of Scripture attached to a man-made adjective. We all believe in the doctrine of atonement. But what does limited mean? 
We all believe in depravity, but what does total depravity mean? Does that mean an unbeliever can't do anything good ever? Uh, we believe in election, but what is unconditional election? We believe in grace, but what does irresistible mean? That's where the heartburn is. That's where the ink has been spilled. It's on the adjective we've attached to wonderful doctrines. Now, we are talking about difficult subjects because we're trying to understand something from eternity past. I think I mentioned I can't remember what I preached two months ago. But I'm now going to figure out what God has done in eternity past and into eternity future. That that event that transpired on the cross that created the foundation for our atonement. Who was it for? And to what extent? What measure? Uh, uh, for what benefit? So that's where we have all these books in my library, you know, on the doctrines of grace and all the debate. Uh, I, I particularly don't like limited atonement. Uh, the, the idea of limited. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a philosophical argument, not necessarily an exegetical argument. In, in fact, there are some things that we believe rather strongly, and it's hinged on one word in the text. Let me give you an example. How do we know hell is forever? Does anybody want hell to be forever for our unsaved family and friends? No. That's one doctrine I'd like not to believe. The eternality of hell. So how do we know it's eternal? Because in the text, the word eternal is attached to it. In fact, you have the same text in Matthew that talks about some are sent to eternal judgment, torment, and others to eternal joy. How do you know, by the way, that heaven is eternal? How do you know that God isn't going to say to you, you know, it's been a trillion years and I'm kind of tired of you. So I'm going to start over. How do we know we're going to be with him for a trillion and one years? Now, we all want that. But how do we know it's possible? Because the Bible says so. The word eternal is attached to heaven forever and ever. So hell is hinged on a word. Uh, the problem is the word limited is not attached to the word atonement. In fact, as you study it, it seems to me very clear that what we're told instead, for instance, in 1 John 2, and verse 2. That, that signature text keeps me from being what I would call a classic Calvinist. Uh, where he said, John says, you see how he died not only for the sins of the elect, but the sins of the whole world. There are certain verses that I look at and I go, you know what? That's the foundation and I'll interpret every other verse in light of that one. Okay, Same thing with spiritual gifts. I believe that some have ceased. Uh, there are others who say all of them have ceased. Uh, I believe that some of them haven't because of 1 Peter 4. See, you have been given a special gift, so use it for the service of others. So it seems that we are in doubt that I'm not supposed to be a history teacher, that I'm not supposed to you know, be that good of a chef either, by the way. Um, I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. And you're supposed to be doing what you're doing as God wires you and gifts you and enables you. Uh, you're, you're, you're an original. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, everybody knew your thumbprint was different from anybody else's on the planet. Well, now we know your face print is so original that now banking can do it by your face. Your retina. So different, your voice. I had a, you know, the bank called me and said, would you like to set up your voice print for security? 
My voice is the only voice like this in the whole world? Yeah, it is. So we're just that unique. Um, limited atonement to me um, uh, is, is somewhat confusing as it relates to some other issues, um, such as, to me, what seems to be a legitimate offer of the gospel to the, to the non-elect. I don't think we need to hang our heads uh, and, and try to figure out if, if they're elect before we give them the gospel because the atonement really wasn't for them if they're not. Uh, I like the way Spurgeon, who was a pretty committed Calvinist, but very evangelistic, he said, you know, if, if, if the letter E for election was written on the backs of every human being, all we would ever do is go around lifting shirt tails before we gave the gospel to anybody. See, we have, we have a legitimate offer, just as I believe Jesus gave a legitimate offer to Israel to be their king. It was legitimate, even though in the end, they did deny him and he knew they would. So is it legitimate to talk to someone about the gospel that God already knows isn't going to believe? I would say absolutely. In fact, you read the Bible, and, and how are they judged? They're judged based on their response to the gospel. And that's what God is going to do with them, is say, look, you, you had the gospel and you rejected it. Uh, so, well, what about those that don't have the gospel? They don't have a Bible. Half the world doesn't. Why would God condemn them? Just because they're not elect? Oh, no. Romans 1 says it very clearly. They have creation. And they deny the Creator, therefore they are without... Anybody know what the next word is? Excuse. They are without excuse. Why? Not because they have the gospel of Christ, but they have the gospel of creation. His invisible attributes are displayed in creation, which, which makes me terrified for our Western world especially that has just embraced evolution and the denial of the Creator. And they keep learning they, they, they just keep attributing everything to Mother Nature as if there's some kind of knowledge stored up in the universe. They're denying the obvious, therefore they're without excuse. So, so how do we handle it? I mean, you, you, you've, you've got the issue as it relates to election uh, with atonement. Theologians like to say it this way. Um, uh, atonement is sufficient for all. It is efficient for the elect. Okay? It's a good way of putting it. It is sufficient for all. Christ died for the world. John said he died for the sins of the world. Upon him, crushing him, were the sins of every one of us and Hitler and Mussolini and Nero, you name it. He, he was saturated with the sin of the whole world paid for it. We legitimately offer the gospel to everyone. Uh, and God works in their hearts to cause them to believe. So we ultimately depend on, on Him. Okay? Long answer. Sorry. Yes? So um, if God knows, you know, He's omnipotent and He's predestined us where we're going, whether it's heaven or hell, then how do we have a free will? Like how, if God knows that, then what even is I was in a conversation with someone, and he was asking these kind of questions, and I was explaining to him, but I was still, like, struggling to understand, like, how to explain it to him, and I tried to tell right. him that we can't understand all of it, because right. otherwise we would be God within ourselves, which is we would understand the will of sure. God, which right. we aren't. So, and that's a good answer, by the way. Um, you, you have, uh, uh, I, I like to think of it this way. Imagine hanging from the sky is this steel um, pillar, column. Uh, it's all braided. It's just hanging. We can't see its origin. And here, here it is, right in front of us. And engraved on it is free will. And then right here is another steel cable coming down from above. We can't see its origin. And carved on it is 
divine election or divine sovereignty. There isn't any way we could ever take those um, and, and, and press them together and, and create one. But when we get to heaven one day, we're going to see there's a pulley up there. It's two sides of the gospel. There's God's part, divine election. There's our part, free will. Did you choose Jesus? Did you exercise your will in saying yes to Jesus? Yeah. You have to to get to heaven. What's God's part? Well, that's where it just gets really crazy because we are trying to understand something from eternity past. Think of prayer. Why do I pray if God already knows what he's going to do and has already set it in motion? How do we not know that the prayer you pray, which God heard 400 billion years ago, that he didn't weave that into his divine purposes so that we could be told in James 5 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It does something. Like Elijah said, Lord, don't let her pray. Judge the nation. And God didn't let her pray. Could it be that part of what's happening in eternity past is God's doing things related to the free will we exercise and forming the pattern, the embroidery of his will? We, we don't know. Part of the challenge is the word free. Find the verse that says free and will. Free will, that's on a church sign. Free will Baptists, usually. Um, you know, again, a lot of these are, are the way we describe uh, doctrine and, and create confusion. And the reason that there's confusion, and I'm not suggesting I've got it all buttoned down, is because we're trying to describe God. What I tell people is you can't go to heaven without two things. One, God opens your eyes, and you, you open your heart and say yes. So um, depending on what I'm preaching, and today, um, I didn't see any of you there, but this morning when I preached, um, just easy, um, I preached a very evangelistic message because Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And so when I get to a text like that, you're going to think I'm an Arminian. I mean, man, let's just you know, put the sawdust down. And I invited people to see me afterward, and they need to accept Christ as king. But then you get to another passage, and it's all about the sovereignty of God. Well, I'm going to camp out, and you'll think I'm you know, an, uh, uh, you know, a Calvinist with capital C. I think Spurgeon said it really well when he said that no lost person should go to hell without our arms wrapped around their knees. We really ought to care and do everything we can because we don't know in the mystery of God what your testimony does as he saw it a hundred trillion years ago and worked that in so that you can say, you know what, I prayed and this happened. Isn't that amazing? Well, that was planned by the Lord. But you still had to pray. You still had to seek Him. You still had to walk with Him. Even God, I don't want to sound too sarcastic, but even God can't steer a parked car. He is entrusted to us in our will to put it in drive. He is not going to get you out of bed in the morning. He's not going to open the Bible and say, now read it, or you can't have breakfast. He's, he's not going to. There's the exercising of our will that corresponds with him moving in our will to do that which pleases him. It, it's just a mystery. It's just a mystery. And that's why nobody can fully explain it. All right? Good question. Yes, sir. Yeah, speak up a little loud so they can hear you. Yeah. So 1 Corinthians 15, 29, uh, it says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized <laughs> that are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized waiting? So they kind of lay the foundation for the bad weather to stay. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good good little stumper verse, you know, for the for the Mormons. Uh I, I think I think Paul is speaking with hyperbole because they were baptizing for the dead and they're 
religious rites. And it's almost as if he says, well, you know, if they're doing that, then this ought to be true. Not validating that. And we have no expression anywhere in the New Testament church of anything related to post-mortem salvation. And Mormonism is based on post-mortem salvation. They scare the dickens out of everybody into being baptized for every family member. That's why Ancestry.com is so incredible. We use it because we want to find out you know, where, our, where our cousin is, third cousin removed from Uncle Henry, and we, and we, and we find him. They're, they're using it and have for, for over a century because they need to be baptized so that that person can go to heaven. So they've got a religious motivation. And it's a religion of works. Your, your salvation is not based on anybody in your family. Uh, it's based on you. But that, that is one of, those, one of those stumpers. Yeah, they'll pull that one out. They're trained to do that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, boy, that's a, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, you're, you're tough class. I'm, you know, you're, you're the pastor. Well, what's happening is something that we need to keep in the context of the Old Testament. Remember that when you turn your Bible over to Matthew chapter 1, that you have that little white page that says New Testament, which is misleading. The New Testament. Anybody know when the New Testament dispensation, the era of the New Testament, actually begins? Anybody have a guess before Paul answers? When did the New... When, when did the Old Testament... When was it finished? And the church, the New Testament began. When did that occur? No, you're close. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Right. Paul's going, all right, man, thank you. All right. So until you get to Acts chapter 2, you're in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, John the Baptist is anointed as an Old Testament prophet. And you see a demonstration of the Spirit of God anointing him in that manner. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell in people. That only happened after the church began where the Holy Spirit descended and Jesus ascended. Until then, he'd come on someone. That's why David would pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't interpret that as a New Testament believer because that leads people, that's one of those little stumper verses for loss of eternal security. Okay, That's an anointing. And it comes and goes. Samson is anointed by God's Spirit after he sleeps with a prostitute. I mean, that's kind of confusing. But it's the old covenant view of empowering for a moment and departs. So he has this moment in the womb where he demonstrates what he will become. And that is the forerunner of the Messiah. Okay? So salvation is different in a sense, uh, it is by faith in the atoning work of God. They look forward to the Messiah. We look back, and we're all saved, Old Testament and New Testament, same way, um, by looking toward that uh, coming a Redeemer. But what happened in the womb is, is an Old Testament understanding of that prophet anointing. Okay? Yeah. Yes, sir. That's a good question, too. Um, the, uh, the world will not hear the gospel before the rapture. The church will not be able to fulfill its commission any better than Israel did its commission. Um, we are not withholding the rapture. Um, the, uh, uh, Matthew 23 and 24 talk about all the world hearing 
but that's in the context of the tribulation. And we know from, from Revelation, uh, its description of the tribulation, the ending of the tribulation, an angel is dispatched from God to circle the globe and preach the gospel. Only then will everyone hear the gospel. So again, we go back to Romans 1. Why, why can people be then sent to hell? Why are they without excuse? Because they deny the gospel of creation. They deny the gospel of conscience. They know stealing a chicken is wrong, but they're going to steal it anyway. So they, they sin knowingly. Uh, we have the gospel of Christ. But any one of those is enough to condemn someone because they reject God. So that angel is going to fulfill what Israel didn't and what the church won't as well. Now, how is it that there are believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation entering uh, the, uh, uh, the chorus in Revelation 5, which is, a revel which is a reference to the church being raptured and singing? How is it that every tongue, tribe, clan is represented there? There's only one way. Well, if you come up with two, let me know. But I, there's, there's one way, and that is abortion, miscarriage, mentally incapacitated, unable to refuse it, unable to discern creation. Okay? So every family, uh, tribe that is, every clan, every nation has practiced abortion from, from the beginning of time and uh, has mentally incapable uh, children um, and miscarried children and children who die before that age of accountability. And uh, God is uh, in His grace because atonement is unlimited. As I think that's part of the foundation for infants going to heaven. Yes? So do you think Christians would go to heaven Like what happens to a Christian today if they die? Okay, so what's happening to them when they die? During the tribulation? Yeah. Um, well, everyone who uh, dies during the tribulation having believed in Christ uh, will be part of that crowd that, that he pictures, uh, I think it's Revelation 6, um, where they're, they're um, specifically the martyrs who die for having followed Christ. They're asking the Lord to uh, bring justice to, uh, to them. So they go to be with the Lord. Uh, we're given temporary bodies. If you die today, uh, you're in heaven, your body's in the ground, uh, unless you're unique. Um, well, Elijah, you know, remember, the chariot of fire. Um, Moses, nobody knew what happened to him. And then, of course, Enoch, uh, he was translated. Uh, he walked with God. I remember reading one author who said he just walked with God so long, God one day just said, well, why don't you just come on home with me? So he went to be with the Lord. They didn't, they didn't die. That's unique, which is why many believe they are the two witnesses that come back into Jerusalem during the tribulation. And they're finally put to death because uh, the wages of sin is death. Everybody has to die. Um, but you're given a temporary body. It'll look like you, sound like you. Uh, John, when he's translated, um, sees individuals as individuals. Uh, Moses and Elijah come down and meet with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Peter, they see them. It's still Moses. It's still Elijah. Uh, you know, it's not Frank and Ed. It's, it's still those two men, but just dressed in splendor. Their bodies literally emitting light. So our bodies will be kind of unique. Uh, but then he will keep his promise in finally crushing Satan. He will defeat death. He'll take your body out of the grave at the rapture if you die before it. And your spirit in that temporary body will be done away. Your spirit will come and be joined with a glorified body coming out of that grave. He'll keep his promise, and that one will last forever. I know I'm back in the truck up here, but that's a quick answer.
Good question. Yes, Jackie. Did any of my kids ever bring home a stray cat? See, you, you are, she's been around long enough to know that I love cats. I can just never finish a whole one. <laughs> That's kind of sick, isn't it? Uh, you, you're just really going after me. My, my kids brought home a stray dog one time. All cats should be strays, but they brought home a stray dog. In fact, I just announced to my family, no more pets, because our dog had died, and, you know, you're trying to raise kids, and you got a dog, and the dog's harder to, you know, take care of than the kids. Plus, you can't go anywhere. I, I just kind of announced, okay, hey, you know, this is, this is no more, no more. And they all kind of, you know, nodded their heads. My boys were at the time about six, seven. And uh, so one day, not long after, I probably told this story, and you probably heard this. They come home, and they've got a puppy that was at the soccer field where they were up the street in the neighborhood, and it had been caught in the net. And they untangled the little puppy, his little beagle, and it was limping, and, and it followed them home, you know, time for the violin. So I get a call from my wife. She says, honey, I know you said no more pets, but let me tell you what happened, and then you decide. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we kept the dog. Now they named it Lucky, because it really was lucky uh, to stay there. It was, it was a great dog. But no stray cats in my life. If you come see me in my office sometime, some of you are going through Greenhouse. Scott's going through Greenhouse right now. Anybody else in here in Greenhouse? My new members class? Okay. Uh, we'll eventually meet, and I've got my cat shrine in there. Jackie, have you ever seen my cat shrine? Oh, yeah. Yeah, any, anything anybody sends me, a birthday card, get well card, please leave town card, has a cat on it. So I got all this policy. I got this shrine. And uh, some cards are really, really good. Uh, one says, um, cats have nine lives, which makes them ideal for experimentation. <laughs> you know, some of those are great. I have it propped right there on my window. Some of you are really mad at me right now. I can tell. All right, let's change the subject. All right, uh, there's not much time left. Yes, sir. Yeah, it does. Good question. One of the challenges with 1 John is, is to whom is he writing? Believers or unbelievers? And um, I am firmly convinced it is to believers. Um, if you sin, and you will, you have an advocate with the Father. Don't. Don't walk in darkness. Don't have fellowship with them. But if you sin and you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's not salvation. Um, if it is, we're in trouble because we can't even remember the sins we well, commit to confess. If you try to get on your knees at night and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go through the list. We're all in trouble. You can't remember. We just sin. We, we are sinners. And we try to interrupt our sin with doing something good periodically. Now, the world out there says, oh, you're good, and you interrupt it periodically doing something bad. Now, the Bible says we're corrupt, and we constantly battle that with the strength of the Holy Spirit. So it's a wonderful book for believers. It gets really confusing if you flip around and go from back and forth from believer to unbeliever, and, and, and you know, I've got commentaries on my shelves that do that, and it's, it, uh, it is confusing. Good question. You guys are asking really great questions. All right, I think I've got a couple minutes here coming down the pike. I'm, I'm still standing. Uh-oh. Okay, yes, sir. Kind of based off the same thing. Yeah. Um, and your sermon this morning kind of hit on this, something that I'd love to hear. How would you say the idea of, um, kind of like you talked about in your testimony, of giving your life over to Christ and claiming the ship of salvation? Yeah. 
well, that, that is, no one can be saved and say, Lord, I'm going to give you, you know, 10%. I keep the 90. So salvation is surrender. Uh, but so is sanctification. Sanctification is that lifelong process where we walk with Christ. He teaches us things. In fact, the older you get, the more you realize you need to commit yourself to the Lord. There are things that you'll manage right now that 10 years from now you'll think how corrupt that was. So as you grow in Christ, this is the Apostle Paul's progression, by the way. Early in his life, he said, I am the least of the apostles. That's not bad, one out of 13. Okay, he comes in last. Um, Later in his life, he says, I am the least of all the saints. So now he's broadened it to every believer he comes in last. He started out, he's last out of 13. Uh, He's the 13th in a sense, apostle to the Gentiles. So they replaced Judas with Matthias. So he looks at those 12 and he says, I'm last. Then he looks at the whole church and he says, to be honest with you, I, I I, I come in last. The end of his life, what does he say? I am the chief of sinners. That's actually a good progression. So long as it doesn't allow the enemy to blindside us, ambush us with doubt. We all doubt. We all struggle with it. We have to drive ourselves back to the revelation of God that this is the truth. And if I've accepted Christ uh, and I believe in his cross work, and it's not of me, it's of him. Then if there's something in addition I've got to know, there's a little secret somewhere, then God hasn't been true to his word. So when that Philippian jailer came to Paul and said, uh, in Acts 19, I think it is, or 20, what must I do to be saved? Well, a good Calvinist would have responded, you don't need to ask that question, you're obviously elect. A good Arminian would say, well, here are 10 things. You better do them all in the right order or you're never going to get in. And even after 10, you might lose it. Paul just simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Belief, faith, same word. It means to lean, to depend on him. And you shall be saved. Great answer. I love that text like the dying thief. I'm so glad that's in there too. He couldn't do one thing for God and he got right into paradise that day. Couldn't get baptized, couldn't give any money, couldn't join a church, couldn't stick around for the Holy Spirit. He just believed that Jesus was the king and Jesus said today you and I are going to be together in paradise. And I love that text with the jailer. There's nothing here. There's no extra stuff. Just believe in Christ and you're in. We drive ourselves back to that as we walk with Him. Guys, great questions. This is a very uh, astute, uh, Bible-rich audience. So thank you for letting me come. And I won't promise to ever come back, because if I do, you'll really have the questions. However, I'd be happy to come back sometime. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.